Welcome to Jay Madison's Rural America. It's a journey through the stories impacting rural economies and country lifestyles. Jay Madison's Rural America is also a production of Jefferson County Economic Development. Now here's Jay. Hey there folks, this is Jay Madison with Jay Madison's Rural America and welcome to our podcast. Great to have you all here. Uh, last week I was out of commission, had a little bit of a pneumonia I had to deal with. So uh, caught me off guard, uh, knocked me out of my my hockey announcing and everything. I was a little under the weather, but we're back and on the line from the Southern Command Center is Mr. Ron Robbins. How you doing, Ron? Hey, I'm doing great, Jay. I hear you guys got some slippery roads up there this morning. Yes, uh, you know, the uh, National Weather Service had uh, predicted, I I went through and read their uh, forecast discussion last night because I was curious as to what we were going to get today, and they made it sound like, uh, as I read their forecast discussion, that we were going to have rain up until probably about noontime. Well, when I got up at 5 o'clock this morning, it wasn't rain. (laughs) In fact, it was a little bit of a flash freeze, and the roads were bad, very bad. Not a lot of snow, but just enough to glaze over and make a nice sheet of ice. Well, that's what uh, I always check in with my drivers in the morning, even though I'm down here where it's... uh... It's actually cloudy this morning, and it's actually supposed to cool down, and uh, uh, I don't think we're supposed to get a frost this weekend here in Florida, but uh, it's going to be down in the 30s uh, overnight, so uh, I guess and I, I guess we're supposed to get really cold at home, right? Uh, lows in the teens here, single digits, maybe even the next couple nights, so... Yeah, uh, I believe so. But, but my driver said, you know, when they... Uh, when they left to come in around four this morning, it was right on the edge of uh, raining and, and the temperature was dropping and it dropped. We definitely had a flash freeze and it went from rain to snow and a very short period of time. And when it snowed, it snowed really hard for uh, about two hours. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I woke up, uh, looked out the window, it was snowing pretty good and it was big wet flakes. It was, the nasty stuff so um, yeah yeah and like i said they... well you you uh you have it now you are feeling better i take it you sound better i know i talked to you a couple times you were uh so i hear that nasty kind of respiratory thing's been going around yeah and, uh, everybody's been getting getting it at least up here um i don't know that everybody's getting you know that it, it's going into pneumonia but i'll tell yeah, you what I... the the treatment, Ron, was, uh, and folks, we, th- we will talk about agriculture in just a second here. Uh, actually, we've got a really interesting topic. But in the meantime, the treatment for the m- pneumonia was, uh, man, I- I'm not afraid of shots. They never bother me. But I was getting <laughs> three shots every day, and it was like snake venom. The minute that stuff even <laughs> dripped on your skin, you'd get the stinging, burning, horse kicking you sensation and then once it went in for hours afterwards i was like damn this stuff hurts so i asked my doctor about it and he told me he laughed and he said oh actually i'm 
diluting a little bit of, I'm diluting it a little bit with lidocaine so it doesn't hurt as much. I'm like, oh, <laughs> glad you're doing well, that, Doc. Jeepers. Yeah, well, at least it knocked it out. You know, and you got to worry a little bit, Jay, you know, with, you know, people that have had COVID and yeah. certainly there was lung damage probably from COVID. You know, then you get an upper respiratory like that, that, uh, you know, it definitely pays to pay attention, I think. Yeah. It, well, you know, at first, uh, I ended, I, I first went to an urgent care and, you know, they listened to my lungs and they said, oh, here's, you know, here's this cough medicine and some other stuff. And so I took that because I couldn't get into my doctors, my regular doctors. And, uh, you know, I started taking that and man, I could feel myself dropping. My doctor's office opened up and I called them that morning and I said, hey, I need to get in there today. And uh, he, you know, I walked in and he walked in and, uh, you know, started talking to him and he said, you've got pneumonia. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm not going to put you in the hospital, but you're pretty close. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I uh, don't like hearing those words. I'm not, I, I don't know when the last time I was in the hospital was. So, um, so anyways, yeah, it caught my attention and uh, I'm, I'm much better now. Still, I still get a cough once in a while. Uh, you know, still there's a little stuff left in there. But uh, tonight, going to be back announcing hockey. So we'll see how bad that goes. Yeah, well, so, good. For the Watertown Wolves. But anyways, let's get to agriculture. Uh, uh, we probably lost a few listeners by now. They yeah. didn't want to hear my life story. Sorry, folks. Uh, and Ron, um, I brought it to your attention. Uh, happened to catch in the Sports Business Journal a uh, uh, story written by Chris Smith on January 9th. Um, it's titled Athlete Investment Firm Patrikoff Company Eyes an Asset Class with Real Growth Potential, Farmland. And you know that obviously caught my attention immediately, so I sent it to you. And we've, we've been talking about it off air. And uh, uh, it's pretty interesting. Apparently, this investment firm uh, works with athletes, professional athletes, to help them invest their money. And in particular, this Patrikoff has uh, helped uh, 200, over 200 uh, athlete clients deploy over $125 million across a series of private equity investments. Um, but now they're venturing into farmland. And one of the one of the figures that I saw quoted in here, I want to ask you about. It says that farmland investments have become a popular uh, investment category among high net worth individuals. Bill, Bill Gates, we've heard about him investing in farmland. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett, and so on. There's a 2020 report from PGIM Real Estate that farmland investments posted an annualized return of 12.3% over the prior 20 years, outpacing stocks, bonds, and commercial real estate investments in that same time. Is, to your knowledge, is that true? Is that, is that an accurate piece of information? Yep, that is accurate, Jay. And, you know, I've had significant experience down here in Florida. Um, 
getting to know some investment firms that uh, use a lot of pension money, uh, municipal pensions, teachers' pensions. Uh, they manage all those monies. They're investing in farmland. Uh, there's 1,300 acres here just west of the town I'm in that's uh, owned by four baseball players out of Puerto Rico. Uh, they're they're leasing that land out to a large vegetable operation down here, growing string beans. Um, but those returns are, you know, they're they're getting anywhere from nine to twelve percent of annual returns from what I've been able to uh, to gather, and um, and I think in some cases they derive that from, you know, buying land that. Uh, possibly is, you know, could be a distressed sale, um, whatever. They get in there, they buy that land, they make some improvements, they lease it out. Um, you know, in some cases down the road, they're able to, they're, they're able to flip that land and, and show a nice return. Um, so long story short, it's happening. It's happening all over. Um, down here in Florida, it's amazing all the big sales that are taking place here, large tracts of acres that are, you know, being sold for farming. A lot of that is being bought by out of the country investors. That's South a little Americans. worrisome. Uh, in fact, every single big sale that I know of here recently has been bought by somebody in South America, either Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. It's just... Now, uh, wait a minute. Uh, Venezuela, that's... I'm trying to think of my countries here. Venezuela is not necessarily a friendly, friendly country to the United States. That's the case. And, and in Venezuela, there's, of course, a lot of corruption. Uh, you know, people have lost fortunes there. It's been seized by the government. But, you know, a lot of that money has fallen into... Uh, you know, to the hands of, of the upper class there. And then they're looking to pull that money out of that country and get it in a safe haven somewhere. You and I hear constantly concerns about China in particular, buying up a lot of United States farmland. And, you know, we're both familiar with what happened in Pennsylvania and other Midwestern or mid, uh, mid-Atlantic states with the pork industry, uh, China invested heavily into the pork industry here in the United States. It gets concerning that our potential enemies, which I would say China absolutely is, and Venezuela is certainly no friend of the United States, that those countries are buying our farmland, buying our food production. And you and I have both said that our ability to produce feed to uh, produce food to feed United States citizens is the foundation of our strength as a nation. And so if if we're potentially having other countries invest in that and control that ability in the end to produce food, aren't we selling our our very strength to other we're countries? We're selling the most valuable asset that we have um, next to our energy. So, you know, energy supply is probably second to our land asset here our ability to produce food uh, those are those certainly are our two biggest assets but uh, the ability to produce food obviously is is the most important because without that you, you nothing else happens right right and so I think going back to your sports uh, article yeah. you know 
you're seeing the the people that manage money for these uh, professional athletes are looking at land and saying, "Oh, hey, there's a lot of interest in land from all in U.S. farmland from all over the world. If we own it, we know the value is going to do nothing but go up. It's a it's a real safe investment. It's uh, it shows a a steady return on an annual basis." really don't have to worry about fluctuations of stocks and bonds and other things. I mean, land is a, if it's leased out for farming, it's a pretty stable income. And then it keeps going up in value because hmm. demand for it is happening, is coming from all over the world. Well, you know, right here in Jefferson County, we've seen that increase. The, the value of the land, you know, back when I first started as agricultural coordinator uh, back in 2000, you know, I think some of our best farmland then was going for maybe a thousand dollars an acre, if I if I remember correctly. And now some of that land is is upwards of four to six thousand dollars an acre, and that's that twenty year investment. Um, so you know, even here in Northern New York State, that uh, that rings true that farmland is a good investment for the long term. Now, uh, in per- go ahead, Ron. Well, then you, you get to places like, uh, you know, the Mid-Atlantic you talked about, where you yeah. have competition from development pressure. So farmlands being lost, you know, to development pressure there with the metropolitan areas of everything from basically Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, that whole corridor, all kinds of pressure there on farmland. And that's a and that's an area that, historically it's been very productive so the same thing is happening there i mean land in in lancaster county pennsylvania now for instance uh kind of the breadbasket of pennsylvania thirty thousand dollars an acre well how do farmers compete with that yeah i I mean you know the typical dairy farmer here in jefferson county can't afford to purchase land at ten thousand dollars an acre let alone thirty thousand dollars an acre yeah so you're right how how do we continue farming the value of the land is increasing to that price it just it really takes the farmer out of the equation as far as being able to be the investor um yeah basically you lose control and it's the same thing whether it's a professional sports group or a foreign entity when they buy that land, they now control, they command what that land's going to be rented for, for food production. Uh, you know, they're going to command a certain return on that investment. If I, as a farmer, need that land, they're going to be in the driver's seat as to what I'm going to have to pay for it. And, you know, reading the details of this particular investment with Patrickoff Company, that's the investment uh, uh, firm. Um, they worked, uh, they're, they're in the process of purchasing, it looks like five different farms. Uh, they do cite this one farm, 104 acre farm in Northern Iowa that specializes in corn and soybean production. $5 million investment was the first step of a broader farmland strategy for the firm, which plans to invest in at least four more farms, so a total of five. Uh, They have around two dozen athletes who have committed capital to the farmland investment strategy, including Boston Celtics uh, forward Blake Griffin, uh, Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, and Milwaukee Bucks guard Chris Middleton. And... uh, 
you know, it's, boy, it's, it makes sense. And, and I'd rather see the athletes investing in it than the foreign, yeah, foreign, foreign governments. But it's, it's a crying shame that our farmers themselves are going to be priced out of the market as far as being able to be the investor in the land in the future, the way this is going. And see, what's adding to this, and especially this is especially true in the Midwest, but it's also true in places like the Northeast, uh, the, farm, the farm ownership population out there, those that have traditionally owned farmland, are aging out. Mm, okay. And, uh, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80 years old, they own this farmland. They, uh, they pass away or, you know, they, they have to sell it to uh, their kids have moved away. They've moved to the city. They really have lost that connection to the farm in many cases, you know, so to manage the estate, uh, many cases, you know, the land either gets split up or sold or whatever the case. And that's where these investment groups step in and, and with lots of, lots of cash and, uh, and scoop that up. So the neighboring farmer then is competing with that investment group. Yep. Are we seeing a are we seeing a sea change, if you will, a massive change in the business model of farming, where farmer for the most part will no longer own the property they farm; they'll be leasing it in order to farm. There'll be that investment group in the background who owns the land, leases it to farmers, and as part of that uh, future business model, that seems. To be taking place now and i'm not saying it's good i'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying it's what we're talking about will that potentially though allow the younger generation who who couldn't even afford to buy the dairy farm today from a farmer mm-hmm. um will that allow them to be able to come in and lease that dairy farm and get a start in building their uh business albeit probably never owning the land that they're farming. Is that what we're seeing? I don't think that'll be able to happen, Jay. I'll be honest with you, because the money needed to come in and just pay the rent and buy the equipment and and get set up the farm, the overhead cost of that is so going to be so cost prohibitive. And without that land asset, you know, there's not a whole lot from a risk standpoint to fall back on. Well, that's true. So really... That land's going to get leased to an established farmer. You'll see massive consolidation. You know, there'll be a lot fewer farms and uh, they'll be very, very large, you know, multiple type entity operations. I think we're seeing that. We're seeing it. It's going to happen very quickly. It's going to happen in the dairy industry. I think we're seeing it even locally where fortunately a lot of the smaller farms are exiting out, but they're able to do so in a way that, you know, their assets are worth a lot of money. Their animals, their machinery are worth a lot of money and their land is, is sought after by larger operations. So in many ways, it's a, it's a perfect exit strategy for smaller operations. Now, you know, everybody says, you know, well, we don't want to lose the small family farm. And, but I think it's just it's inevitable that let's just hope, though, that the farms that do remain still have owned by a family unit, you know, still have a local connection. Yes, absolutely agree. Uh, um, I'm just I'm thinking about as as this happens and we see it here in northern New York, smaller mom and pop, you know, doing all the work, farming that 
300, 400 acres. Those operations are eventually closing down as an entity um, because what you described. They're, you know, they're aging out, they want to retire, or, you know, it's just not cash flowing for them the way they operate. So they have the advantage of having that larger farming operation that's nearby, you know, a, a family that has grown their business model and, you know, added on multiple farms over the years, milking a lot of cows or, you know, have a lot of livestock, whatever. Um, but even that structure to me becomes threatened by what we've been looking at here with these investment firms coming in because they, unless they continue to rapidly grow somehow, they won't be able to compete with the investment firm with right. multiple large investors coming in and purchasing land out from around them. It, 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 yes. Would that be accurate at all? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. And I mean, in a perfect situation, you know, the local farm that's grown their business, you know, they can, they can still afford to, you know, to compete and buy that, that land and keep it in production. That allows opportunities for younger people to come in as, as, middle managers and junior partners uh, in those larger operations, keeps that local connection. That's the perfect situation. Anything other than that becomes much less than perfect. But if these investment firms are going to come into areas that can do agriculture really well and invest in that farmland and buy up that farmland, does it, <clears throat> does it in the end lead to that larger family operation, like we see here in Jefferson County in Northern New York, does it lead to that larger operation eventually not being able to afford to buy land around them to continue to grow? And if there's nobody available to farm that investment farm, if you will, uh, we're still going to see that exodus from agriculture. Oh, it's it's a it's a really uh, it's like walking a tightrope, right? I mean, it's very fragile. So, boy, <laughs> I'm just it, you know, there's so many things, and and folks, you're listening to uh, my co-host Ron Robbins. Uh, he is normally here in Northern New York State. Uh, his family owns North Harbor Dairy Farm and Old McDonald's Farm. And Robin's family grain, but he's at his Southern Command Center in Florida right now. And I'm your host, Jay Madison, sitting here in my office talking about this whole uh, idea of investment uh, firms purchasing farmland uh, as investments, which uh, you know is great in a way. Uh, but does it eventually also lead to families not being able to farm in any way because? They're being priced out of the opportunity to buy the greatest asset we have here in the United States, and that's our farmland. And, and it's it's a huge question, and I don't know that there's an answer right now, Ron. No, I honestly don't. I think we're in such a state of transition that we really can't really put our finger on what the outcome of this is going to be, and it's happening very quickly. And, you know, all of us involved in agriculture – including yourself, Jay, I, I, I'm guessing, is uh, 
is sitting back here and, and looking at this and not really able to pinpoint any clear direction of where this is going to go. You know, I was mentioning to you earlier, even kind of a different scenario down here in Florida, where you have large tracks being bought by, you know, foreign entities. Uh, but then in other cases, uh, you have, you know, what might have been a thousand acre ranch or a 2000 acre ranch. They're cutting that up into 20 and 40 acre parcels and selling those 20 and 40 acre so-called ranchettes all over the place. You're seeing uh, foreign immigrants from all over the world, Asia, Eastern Europe, Middle East, Cuba, uh, South America, Mexico. They're buying 20 or 40 acres, putting a fence around it. In many cases, they might put up a couple sheds or a couple uh, canopy tents uh, for shelter, pull a camping trailer in and uh, get some animals, plant a garden. And uh, and now they, they're becoming almost homesteaders, I guess, right? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And I'm going to, my terminology, I'm, I'm not remembering my history that well at the moment. Well, you're saying these people are actually purchasing that 20 or 40 acres. Yes. Yeah. They're not, so it's not being different. given to them, but they're coming here with some money somehow or another. They're coming here with some money enough to buy 20 or 40 acres. And, you know, basically uh, it, it appears anyway, living rather primitively, but being self-sufficient for the most part. So that's maybe the other end of the spectrum, right? Maybe what we're seeing is the system is slowly going back to its roots. Mm -hmm. You know, that and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but you know, with what you're describing, do those eventually grow into larger farming operations? Um, but they're they're going back to you know, yeah. the last century uh, uh, yeah. type agriculture, and is that a good thing when we've got a growing population and that feed society? Yeah, and basically, what you're doing is taking a large track of production productive land and cutting it up and putting it into somewhat primitive production practices. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's happening and it's most, and it's predominantly owned by those that come from countries where they've been somewhat oppressed, uh, somehow or another come here with some cash, basically see this as an opportunity for some freedom. I, and that's great. I mean, agriculture was that in the, the birth of this nation. You know, those little 20, 40 acre plots yeah. that yeah. could be farmed, like you're saying, primitively. And that's how the citizens of this country built a great country. But is it the way we should be going? Should we be going back to that now? I don't know. It's, 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 it's a very perplexing situation. And uh, I don't think you and I are going to be able to answer that today. In fact, we're out of time, so we're not going to be able to answer yeah. it. Um, but it's 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 something to consider, you know, as, as we talk about rural America uh, here on this podcast. It's it, that is, you know, what rural America was a long time ago. And mm -hmm. maybe it's what rural America will become. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, no, it's a very interesting discussion. It's going to be an interesting thing. I think, I think our job here, Jay, really is to just point out what we're seeing, the trends, you know, it's not to answer the question generally. It's to 
it's to provide listeners, you know, some some factual information about what we're seeing on the ground and what we're seeing in rural America. And hopefully this is a, you know, this is just a, another topic of, of things that we continue to, to watch and progress and who knows where it's going to go. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting. Well, sir, we need to wrap up. Uh, Want to let our listeners know, our regular listeners know that uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a real treat for you. Uh, we have Stephanie Nash, a uh, country music singer-songwriter and ad- agricultural advocate. She will be joining us here on the podcast. So don't want to say a date yet, just in case something changes in people's schedules. Uh, but she is very excited to be uh, joining Ron and I here on the podcast. And hopefully we'll be able to get Alan in for that as well. And uh, I, I think it'll be a fun conversation with Stephanie. So looking forward to that. Yeah, very much so. That's going to be exciting. Yeah. All right, Ron. Well, we're going to sign off, sir. You have a fantastic day. I will. And have a hopefully uh, a peaceful weekend up there with no slippery <laughs> roads. And uh, we will look forward to talking next week, Jay. All right. All right, folks, that's it. Uh, that was Ron Robbins down at his Southern Command Center down there in Florida. And I'm Jay Madison. And Hope you all have a fantastic day and make sure you tune in for our next podcast right here on Jay Madison's Rural America. Thank you for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America. Make sure to join us weekly. If you have any questions about the show, call Jay at 315-782-5865. For more information, visit www.agricultureevents.com or jcida.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America.